Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. A very good morning to you and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African Perspective, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa. We are also on the DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802. I'm Amanda Machaka in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhuku and Fikile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Kenya's opposition want Raila Odinga to be declared winner of the election. UN maintains zero tolerance to militarization of camps in South Sudan. South African opposition files motion calling for early elections. In economics, IMF revises Botswana's 2017 growth focus. And in sports, Wade van Nieker wins 200-meter silver at the World Championships. But first, here's Anne Musa with the news. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Kenya's election commission has warned the opposition that it claims that its claims of a victory for its presidential candidate Raila Odinga could be deemed illegal. The opposition's figures put Odinga ahead of the incumbent president Uhuru Kenyatta. This is in contrast with the provisional electronic results which give Kenyatta a clear lead. The BBC's Ansoy reports. The Kenyan Electoral Commission pointed out what it called elementary mathematical errors in the opposition coalition's purported results of the presidential election. The sum of votes the two main presidential candidates got, for instance, was more than the number of voters who took part in the poll. Commission Chairman Wafula Chebukati told the BBC that the documents containing the real results were still being sent from constituencies to their national tallying centre. He added that the final outcome will be announced once all results are received and verified. Earlier, the Kenyan Electoral Commission admitted that there was an attempt to hack into its computer system, but it stressed that hackers were not able to manipulate the provisional electronic results for Tuesday's election. The election observers and former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry say there are procedures in place to deal with complaints. Any candidate's legitimate evidence of something that has happened needs to be judged, but it needs to be judged through the appropriate process. You can't have members of your party or others engaging in a kind of threat unveiled to the public when you say, you know, go to work for now, but we may need you call to action at some point in time. That is not the way to proceed forward here. Zambian President Edgar Lungu and opposition leader Hakiende Chilima have agreed to engage in a peaceful dialogue to address the country's political tensions. This follows extensive consultations with Commonwealth Secretary General Patricia Scotland, who arrived in the country on Sunday as part of a peace and relationship building tour of Africa. Scotland held consultations with Lungu Hichilima, the Speaker of the National Assembly and Church leaders. She also met with officials from the Electoral Commission of Zambia and members of the diplomatic corps. The UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, says around 550,000 children in Libya 
need assistance due to an ongoing conflict, political instability and economic collapse. State institutions, infrastructure and the economy have steadily declined since fighting began during the ouster of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. UNICEF says it was particularly worried about migrant children in the country who are vulnerable to abuse and exploitation, including in detention centers. And finally, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro says he wants a face-to-face meeting with his U.S. counterpart Donald Trump. In a speech to the newly elected Constituent Assembly, Maduro accused the U.S. of imperialism, but said he had ordered his officials to try to arrange talks with Trump in New York next month. The U.S. hit Maduro with sanctions last month after the election of the Loyalist Constituent Assembly that Washington called illegitimate. Maduro says despite the violence surrounding its creation, the Assembly has a peaceful purpose. This National Constituent Assembly was born of a violent birth. It was born of a historical need for peace. It was born with a clear mandate, a doctrine, to make peace through truth and justice to open the roads of prosperity. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and for that news update, it's five minutes after eight Central African time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa. We're bringing you news from an African perspective. I'm Amanda Machaga. Kenya's opposition coalition, the National Super Alliance, NASA, has demanded that its presidential candidate, Raila Odinga, be declared a winner of the just-concluded presidential elections. NASA's chief agent, Musalia Mutavadi, said information in their hands indicated that Odinga had won the poll with 8.4 million votes against Uhuru Kenyatta's 7.7 million votes. The ruling Jubilee Party's Secretary-General Rafael Tuju has, however, dismissed the opposition declaration. International observers applauded the Electoral Commission for how it has handled the elections this far. Sarah Kimani reports. The National Telling Center in Nairobi. Electoral Commission officials are coming through the results declaration forms. This after claims by the opposition that the electronic telling systems had been compromised to slant the results in favor of President Uhuru Kenyatta. Wafula Chebukati is the chairman of the Electoral Commission. As at 7 p.m., we have received 40,501 from 34As and uploaded the same to the public portal. 532 out of the 40,883 polling stations are yet to submit their results. The opposition has however come up with fresh figures that they claim they got from an IBC insider, allegedly putting Odinga in the lead. Musalia Mudavadi is a NASA chief agent. We demand that the IBC chairperson announce the presidential election results forthwith and declare the Right Honorable Raila Molo Dinga and His Excellency Stephen Kalonzo Musyoka as the duly elected president and deputy president of the Republic of Kenya respectively. The Electoral Commission will however hear none of that. Chebukati again. There is only one election management body in this country and that is IBC 
And this is the body mandated to run elections. It's the only body that's mandated to count the ballot papers after voters have voted. And it's our job after counting to announce the results. Now, that is very, very important so that if a candidate brings results to us, we cannot take those results. NASA's main opponent, Uhuru Kenyatta's Jubilee Party, dismissed the claims. Rafael Tuju is the Secretary General of the Jubilee Party. Those remarks are made uh, with the purpose of inciting their support base and to make their support base uh, have no confidence in the final results when they are announced. Because I think that it is common sense that given the figures that we're seeing in our TV screens, um, they most probably have lost. International observers were united in applauding the Electoral Commission for a transparent process. John Mahama, the former president of Ghana, is the head of the Commonwealth Observation Mission. Our overall conclusion is that the opening, voting, closing and counting process at the polling stations on 8 August 2017 were credible, transparent and inclusive. The observers said they could not comment on the allegations by the opposition that the systems had been hacked, but they urged for calm and restraint among the leaders. And indeed it would be very regrettable uh, if there was anything that emerged afterwards which sought to corrupt that outcome, to spoil that outcome. Nairobi streets started filling up on Wednesday, but most people stayed away for fear of violence. The observers urged those with grievances to lodge the petitions in court. If that process concludes and the IBC declare a winner, anybody who has a grievance knows what he should do. No Kenyan blood must be shed because somebody is aggrieved with the electoral process. It is the paper ballots and the accounting process established by the IEBC that tell the story of this election, not the electronic transmission of those numbers. It's time for Africa to put behind the the times and the days where every election would put fear in everybody. Election is not about, you know, uh, struggle. It should be, actually, um, a good moment for democracy. Uh, uh, the top candidates in these elections have uh, uh, very important voices to their bases and we urge them to use it to take their responsibility and show leadership in an ongoing matter. Provisional results published by the Commission indicate that Uhuru Kenyatta is in the lead with 54.3% of the total votes cast against Raila Odinga's 44.8%. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. A zero-tolerance approach preventing protection camps in war-torn South Sudan from being militarized is the best way to keep civilians safe. That's the view of the head of the UN peacekeeping mission in the country, Anmis David Shira. He was speaking in Bentu in the north of South Sudan, where around 115,000 people are currently living in the mission's largest protection of civilian site, or POC. Last month, 22 armed men in civilian clothes were taken into custody by Mongolian peacekeepers, after they tried to shelter from fighting by breaking into the camp. Daniel Dickinson spoke to Mr. Shira in the middle of Bentu camp and asked him to describe the scene. 
People have been here for four years. Um, it's a camp of nearly 120,000 people. They've been in makeshift shelters, latrines that are pretty rudimentary. They get food support and rations, but bottom line is they are here because they are in fear of their lives and we're looking after them, but this is not a place where you'd want to have a long-term future here. Crime is an issue in this camp. Why is that? You've got young men here who have been living here for four years or more. Uh, they've got no job. They're not uh, necessarily getting an education. They've, they don't believe they've got a future. Um, and they're full of testosterone and want to go out and do things. And um, it's, a, it's a horrible mix. I mean, you'll get the same, I think, in any society. You're going to get crime here when you get these sorts of conditions. And how is that affecting the nature of this camp? Well, it's presenting us with huge challenges. Um, how do we restore law and order? We have a fantastic unpolled team, mainly made up of Ghanaians who are here, but along with, uh, we've got some force people, military people as well. But we're working with the local community, and that's hugely important. Uh, we've got local community watch people who are involved. They're with me as we speak. But just keeping track of that and, and just keeping on top of it is a, an immense issue. So we've got major challenges here. This is not a long-term future. This is a, this is, that's the real issue. Uh, we need to get these people back home to their villages where they can just resume a normal life. Presumably this is taking up an awful lot of uh, the resources of UNMIS. We've got a responsibility to protect across South Sudan about 220,000 people. There's about 115,000, 120,000 people here. So about half of them are here in this camp. We can't abandon them. There's thousands of people alive because of the work that we do, tens of thousands of people. If we walked away, there would be all sorts of problems. Uh, there would all be all sorts of deaths. So we are committed to staying here, but it is looking at a small group of people comparative to what's out there uh, it's about a tenth of the population that is displaced and what we would like to do is to move outside and move beyond the camps to create the sense of security so people can move back. But unfortunately many of, much of our resource is tied up just in protecting these camps. And what can UNMIS do and the wider UN community and international community to encourage people to leave this camp and, and, and start their lives again? Well, ultimately it comes down to a peace agreement and a proper peace agreement, a big, big issue at the international level. But here locally there are places where people can go and start their lives again. There are places where we can reach, where people feel safe. Uh, and what we're trying to do is encourage people to move out and get back to those places where they can grow their own crops, relieve themselves of the dependency of being inside a camp and being dependent on us. Uh, and get back to their lives and I think it's really beholden on us now to be able to get our forces out to provide that sort of degree of security there so they feel confident enough to go back and I think we won't necessarily remove the whole camp but we'll certainly make it much better for large numbers of people who are, who are living here. Head of the UN Peacekeeping Mission in South Sudan, Anmus, David Shearer, speaking there to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. 
Catch us every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. It's 16 minutes after 8 Central African time. South Africa's Democratic Alliance's motion to dissolve the National Assembly and its call for early elections have been rejected by some other opposition parties in Parliament. There has been mixed reaction from the Economic Freedom Fighters, Ingata Freedom Party, Congress of the People, National Freedom Party, Ahang, United Democratic Movement and the Freedom Front Plus. The motion has officially been tabled as Mercedes-Benz reports. The EFF and COPE were among the political parties that called for the dissolution of parliament last year, following the constitutional court ruling on the Nkandla security upgrades. The DA's federal executive recently took a resolution in Cape Town to call for the dissolution of the National Assembly and early elections. If the vote of no confidence motion in President Jacob Zuma was successful, while the motion was unsuccessful, the party is continuing with its call for early elections. The motion has been tabled by DA Chief Whip John Steen Hazen. DA has today tabled a motion in terms of Section 50 of the Constitution to bring about a dissolution of Parliament. We will now obviously have to lobby Parliament to bring this motion above the line so that it can be debated in the House and voted upon. Musi Maimani believes that this is an important step in order to hold the ANC and President Jacob Zuma accountable. It is very clear that the ANC are no longer capable of dealing with President Jacob Zuma and the havoc that he is wreaking on the South African economy and on the population. It is therefore right that we go to the country to seek a new mandate to take South Africa forward. The EFF says it will not support the DA's motion, describing it as opportunistic. EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chibambu. The EFF was the first to call for the dissolution of parliament. We did that immediately after the uh, constitutional court ruling that illustrated that parliament was unable to hold the executive accountable around the Uganda issue. But the DA rejected our proposal that time. And, and the most practical way to deal with the dissolution of parliament is when all of us as members of parliament were in the opposition sessions resigned. The EFF is not going to support a debate around the dissolution of parliament because it's just opportunism uh, which the DA is displaying now. It's opportunist in terms of how they're, prepared, they're, they're presenting it. If they are genuine about dissolution of parliament, let them instruct all their members to resign and parliament will be, will be dissolved automatically. So the DA can, can dissolve parliament by itself. If all members of the DA parliament resign, we no longer have a parliament. COPE leader Musiwale Kota says they will not support the DA motion as it will be a waste of time. This motion has no prospect of success unless it's supported by the ANC. And uh, we don't see the, uh, the, the, the worth of undertaking an exercise which does not have prospects of success. Thirdly, the DA did not consult any of us in the opposition ranks with regard to this. So it's a very uh, frustrating thing to go and do the same thing and still come back with the same result. So we don't think that it's worthwhile. It's a waste of time. IFP Chief Whip Naren Singh says their cooperation on issues of national importance with the DA does not mean that the IFP will support every motion by the DA. A DA resolution does not automatically mean that it will be supported by the IFP or any of the opposition parties. 
we as the IFP have not considered what they have uh, spoken about. And as a caucus and as an executive committee of the IFP, we will consider the matter and uh, give an appropriate response. It's not something that we take lightly, and it doesn't mean that we will automatically support the DA because we're part of the opposition. UDM Chief Whip Nabayomzi Kwankwa says while the DA is within its constitutional rights to call for the dissolution of parliament, the UDM will not support any move to dissolve the institution. Primarily because all the vote of no confidence motions that we supported in the past were not an attempt on our part to take shortcuts to political power. The African National Congress was given a clear mandate by the electorate to govern until 2019. We must take this matter now to the electorate in 2019 as to whether or not they still want the ANC to be in charge. We cannot turn in our view every political disagreement, every issue into a vicious political battle. Nor can we turn every issue into a narrow partisan approach about that is about political power. Because if we do so, then we run the risk of turning Parliament, such an important institution, and its work into a bondoogle. NFP Chief Weapon Sansa Kubisa also rejects the DA motion. The NFP does not believe that it's opportune for Parliament to be dissolved as just not right now. We believe that uh, such an idea is too hasty and there are many factors that have got to be contemplated if you were to dissolve Parliament. And uh, parties don't have resources to prepare for, 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 for the dissolution of Parliament. And we're just at the end of the term. 2019 is just around the corner. Ahang parliamentary leader Andris Loyama believes there are no compelling reasons for parliament to be dissolved. Because I don't, I don't think that the rot that we see, obviously, by the administration of President Zuma can only be the reason for calling early elections. There must be more reasons than that. One must be that, parla- I mean, the, the, the executive or the two houses of parliament are unable to do their functions. Um, there, might, there must be maybe half of the cabinet or the cabinet itself resign. or There must be something extraordinary. It shouldn't be just one or two grievances. Because then if we allow one or two grievances to dissolve a a parliament, then this parliament will be dissolved almost every five years or every two years. Because somebody will say, no, I am not happy with this president. Then let's dissolve parliament. The AIC and the Freedom Front Plus are also not in support of the DA motion. In terms of Section 46 of the Constitution, the National Assembly should consist of a minimum of 350 or maximum of 400 MPs. And if there are mass resignations of MPs, with the DA having 89, can this affect the functioning of the National Assembly and allow it to collapse? The Executive Secretary for the Council of the Advancement of the Constitution, Lawson Naidu, explains. So long as there are 200 members of the uh, of Parliament, Parliament will be able to continue to function. We know that the ANC have 249 members, so a mass resignation will not affect the functioning of Parliament. Parliament has confirmed that it has received the DA motion calling for the dissolution of the National Assembly. Parliament spokesperson Moloto Motapo says the motion will be subject to the normal parliamentary processes in line with the National Assembly rules.
that report by Mercedes Besant in Cape Town. The South African Parliament has reiterated that it is impossible to trace how individual MPs voted during this week's motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma. This follows calls from some in the ruling ANC that those who didn't follow the party line should be identified and dealt with. 26 ANC MPs voted in favor of the motion and nine abstained. This is despite a party instruction that all ANC MPs should vote against it. Zaylin Merrington reports. Several sections of the ANC, like the ANC Youth League in KwaZulu-Natal and a member of the NEC, Lindy Zulu, have called for action to be taken against ANC MPs who didn't follow the party line during Tuesday's secret ballot vote. 384 votes were cast on Tuesday night, 189 MPs voted against the motion, 177 voted in favour and 9 abstained. Speaker Baleka Ambete did not vote. The motion of no confidence in the president is accordingly negative. With 151 opposition seats in the House, it seems 26 ANC MPs voted against their party's instruction. But is it possible to identify how MPs voted? Parliamentary spokesperson Moloto Mutapo says their processes are rock solid. There is absolutely no way that anyone can be able to know how any of the members of parliament voted. There are no identification features uh, on the ballot paper. Each ballot paper has got simple question uh, with uh, three options, no, yes or abstain and together with the stamp for authenticity. That's all that is on the ballot paper. So the entire process, the secrecy of it, of it was well guarded. Even the ballot boxes that, uh, uh, that carries the, uh, the, 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 the ballot papers, they are well guarded, they are stored in a safe place and they can never be opened unless there is a court judgment that orders so or the speaker orders so. The acting spokesperson of the ANC caucus, Nongleba Mflauli, says they will assess the outcome. Currently our numbers tell us that there's plus minus 25 or 26 that voted with the opposition and um, about another nine abstentions. Um, So you would have to then check as to why your members of parliament voted with the opposition um, and, and find means of resolving whatever concerns that they would have had. She adds that there is no intention of embarking on a campaign to identify who voted in a particular way. The intention is not to chase anyone. The intention is not a witch hunt, but the intention is to know why was there the outcomes that we had. It would be wrong of us to assume um, that everyone had the same reason for deciding to defy the party mandate, but it would be important to find out why did we have the outcomes that we had. Their report by Zaylin Merrington in Cape Town. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, 
knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Kharahati, have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. I am the grandchild of the warrior men and women that incense the Kukuni land. Patriots at Tetrayon and Pepu took to battle. The soldiers Mushweshwe and Gungunyane taught never to dishonor the cause of freedom. Being part of all of these people, and in the knowledge that none dares contest that assertion, I shall claim that I'm an African. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.30 Central African time. Today is Thursday, the 11th of August, the 223rd day of 2017. So we have 142 days left in the year. Now today in 2003, Liberian President Charles Taylor resigns and leaves the country for exile in Nigeria. Taylor's departure was seen as a major step in bringing peace to the nation, which had been plagued by civil war for 14 years. That's very interesting indeed. It's 8.31 and Musa is standing by with the news headlines. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Kenya's election commission warns opposition that it claim, its claims of a victory for its presidential candidate could be deemed illegal. 
Zambian President Edgar Lungu and opposition leader Hakiende Chilima agreed to engage in a peaceful dialogue to address the country's political tensions. And UN Children's Fund UNICEF says around 550,000 children in Libya need assistance due to ongoing conflict, political instability and economic collapse. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The release of South African hostage Stephen McGowan has raised a major debate around whether governments should pay ransoms to secure the release of their citizens. McGowan was abducted by the Al-Qaeda-linked terror group in northern Mali in 2011. He was released after spending six years in captivity in July. McGowan was captured together with Swedish national Johan Gustafsson and Dutchman Sag. Shark Rike. Gustafsson was released in June this year and Rike was freed by French Special Forces in April 2015. reports. Whilst the release of Stephen McGowan was a welcome relief to his family, news reports suggesting that a ransom was paid to secure his release continues to dominate the news headlines. It's reported that most of the kidnapped for ransom business in Somalia, some parts of West Africa like Mali and the Sahel region, has become a lucrative enterprise for terror groups. In some cases where ransom was not paid, the hostages were executed. The tactic has worked in some instances where foreign governments were forced to have secretly paid millions of rents in ransom payouts. The New York Times reported that Stephen McGowan's release is said to have been secured by an estimated 50 million rent payment. After a series of diplomatic negotiations and interventions, McGowan's captors finally released him on the 29th of July. However, McGowan was distraught to learn of the death of her ailing mother, Beverly, who passed on in May. State Security Minister David Mashlobo has maintained that no conditions were set or ransom paid to secure Stephen McGowan's release. But our policy position remained the same. We don't actually want to promote that if you take someone, this government must pay something. We engage and we believe in the power of negotiations. We're able to crack it ourselves. We'll be able to crack this. But all South Africans, when you leave your country, it's very important. Advise your government so that we can be able to give you to say the countries we are visiting, either for business, for pilgrimage, or for any other thing that you are going there, or even for tourism, we should be able to say these are the areas you can go to, these are the areas you don't go to, because most parts of the world, they have their own challenges, and it is very important that you touch base with your embers, or even before you leave the country, speak to our Department of International Relations and Cooperation. The South African government has condemned the kidnapping of innocent citizens by extremist groups. Another South African, Shiraz Mohammed, a photojournalist, was captured by the unknown gunmen in war-torn Syria in January. Mashlova has attributed South Africa's latest success in the release of McGowan to its foreign policy, which he says espouses the human rights culture, including the promotion of religious and cultural tolerance. Extremism is mostly ideological. If you look at uh, the religion, for an example, is Islam. Islam does not promote violence and killing of any soul. 
Let's why even in terms of our own policy in countering terrorism as South Africans, we have chosen not to use religion because we understand what it means. The most important aspect is that there is no country that is immune, but more important, we also have to balance the issues of development. If you don't have development, the issues of dissent and the issue that governments fail us, they give a breeding ground, a very enabling environment for the elements of extremism to do radicalization and then you recruit. Meanwhile, government has warned against the practice in which many South Africans venture into unsafe and risky missions in foreign countries without alerting authorities about the purpose of their travels or other logistical arrangements. Our message is always that um, we don't want to behave like other um, countries. If you want to visit any country in the world, it's very important that your country knows so that if anything happens, we don't have challenges that your family doesn't know, your government doesn't know that we are actually visiting this place, who are you visiting, where are you going to be staying, and it's very important from a security point of view. There are certain countries, because there are actually issues of conflict, we say don't go there. And this is a problem because if we don't do that, some of these people end up lending and joining organizations we don't know. McGowan will today make his first public appearance during a media briefing 10 days after he was released from capture in Mali. Tsepo Ikaning in Pretoria. South African citizen Stephen McGowan says he's angry that his captors failed to release him soon enough to see his mother before she passed away, despite knowing that she was critically ill. McGowan spoke to the media for the first time at a briefing hosted by NGO Gift of the Givers at its premises in Bramley, Johannesburg yesterday. The foundation was involved in negotiating his release. McGowan was set free just after two weeks ago after spending almost six years in captive held by an Al-Qaeda-linked terror group in Northern Mali. Channel Africa's Janine Kutsa has more. Stephen McGowan was abducted by the Al-Qaeda-linked terror group in Northern Mali in November 2011 alongside Johan Gustafsson from Sweden and Dutchman Shark Reiker who was freed in April 2015 by the French Special Forces. Gustafsson was released in June. The South African humanitarian relief organization Gift of the Givers worked tirelessly to negotiate McGowan's release, which finally happened on the 29th of July. His return to South Africa was announced publicly on the 3rd of August. Describing his detention, he spoke of his coping techniques. Well, to stay positive, I took the whole time in the, in the Sahara, really. I did not want to come home a mess. And I did my best to see the best in the bad situation, in the difficult times. So I suppose you try and find routine. You try and find things that sort of give you an escapism from the situation, like doing a bit of exercise. I was trying to make conversation with the Mujahideen, to to get along with the Mujahideen. I didn't want to come out an angry person. So I tried to see the best in this situation and be positive and, and get involved in things that I'm not used to, building things different foods, the, the, the different animals in the Sahara, the, the bird migration. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big bird enthusiast, so I saw the swallows and beaters migrate backwards and forwards six times across the Sahara, and this, this, I got a, a lot of joy from things like this. He also talked about the most difficult things experienced every day. The difficult part of the Sahara was really that you don't have any information. And as much as you ask, nobody is able to tell you anything. And I'm not sure if they just do not tell you anything or if they're not allowed to tell you. So this was difficult. And then again, not having many books in English and not knowing Arabic, not knowing French, which I've 
I've picked up a bit of this now, and um, but this this was really the difficult stuff, not having any information in, in, in English and not being able to contact my family because I know this must have put incredible pressure on my family. Day-to-day conditions were also not easy. The physical conditions, wow. Well, that sort of varies from winter to summer, but... Uh, <laughs> Winter, winter, the nights are cold, the days are great, the days are not a problem. But you build your hut, you build a little hut out of grass and sticks and you may have some, some cloth that you put over the top of it. It's pretty comfortable, but early days, early days was a big, uh, we had big problems uh, with, for security reasons. I think the Mujahideen didn't quite know how, uh, you know, what the surveillance airplanes can and can't see. So everything was very strict. You see an airplane, you, you sit down, you lie down, you want no shadows. You become invisible. But then with time, the Mujahideen learn more and then things change within this. The winters, the nights are cold. The winds are absolutely freezing. Uh, we had a blanket. I had a single blanket. Then I had a, then I had a second blanket. But the winds blow right through these things, so it's, 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 it's difficult. It's not easy. Our first, maybe our first week, when, when the three of us were, were taken together, we were chained at night. We, we had handcuffs, and then we had, we had our ankles chained, so we weren't able to move around. And sometimes they would forget about us in the morning, and you'd be sitting there till 9, 10 o'clock, chained up under your blanket, and like sardines, sort of all three under a blanket kind of thing. But that changed. That changed with time. Then, then, and we were blindfolded. This, this, this changed. The handcuffs went and the blindfolds went. The summers, well, people think it doesn't rain in the Sahara, but this is, this is not actually true. You have the most incredible thunderstorms in the Sahara. You get absolutely sopped. It's, it's generally in the evening at night, so you spend the night pretty chilly, wet, sand in your clothes, sand everywhere. It's, it's extreme. It's, it's extreme. It's, it's quite something. McGowan says the one thing he missed really was his freedom. I was looked after very well. I had clothes, I had food, I had... When I was ill, they would bring medication, uh, limited medication, but they would bring panado or things along this line. But you always knew you were a prisoner. It, it was, you were always very apparent. If you ask one too many questions, well, you get put back in your place or you just get blocked. And you always know, and it, it's irrespective of age. I may be dealing with a, with a man who's maybe 50 years old, for example, or maybe dealing with somebody who's maybe 18 years, for example. But you always know that you are at the bottom of the food chain. You are. So freedom, freedom, being in charge of yourself, I suppose. He was asked what he found most surprising after being back in South Africa after almost six years. Well, most surprising. My faith in mankind has been absolutely blown away. I cannot believe how many people have supported this situation. I mean, how many, how many people have supported my family, supported me, supported people I do not know, people all over the world, prayer groups around the world. South Africans are incredible. It, it, this blew me away. And will he one day be able to forgive his captors? Six years is a long time. A lot has changed, but I don't want to harbor resentment. Forgive or forget. I don't know if it's more about forgetting and just putting it behind me and moving on than actually forgiving. I, mean, I can be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm angry about my mother. I'm angry that I was, that I was not released prior to this because um, they were aware that, that my mother was sick. They were aware of this. And to miss my mother by two months, I'm angry about this, but this must go. I must, I must let go of this. This is, not, this, is not a, this is not a problem. So, yeah, I, I will forgive. I'll move on. You, you get one life, one life. So I don't want to carry, carry burdens which are going to just hold me back. So it's okay. It's, it's all right. It's going to be good. McGowan thanked all who played a role in his release and praised his family for not giving up on him. He concluded that he also saw a lot of good in Islam, to which he converted during his captivity on his own. He said it has taken him away from capitalism, showing that people are more important than money. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Janine Kutzer in Johannesburg.
Up to 20 migrants from East Africa feared dead in a new tragedy off the coast of Yemen after they were forced overboard by traffickers. The International Organization for Migration reports that the latest incident happened barely 24 hours after at least 50 Somali and Ethiopian nationals died in similar circumstances as their boat approached Shabwa, a Yemeni governorate next to the Arabian Sea. IOM spokesperson Olivia Hidden says traffickers often dupe their predominantly teenagers victims into making the perilous sea crossing by telling them that conditions outside their country are like heaven. So we know that there was 160 people forced from a boat off the coast of Yemen in the Shabna governorate. Our staff identified the remains of six bodies, four females and two males on the beach this morning. Initially, we had reported that there was 50 people missing. Now the missing number is down to 13. So together, we'll be looking at about 19 or 20 people who died in the tragedy this morning. It seems now with this incident today, coming one day after what happened yesterday, with over 100 people being forced from a boat off the coast of the same governorate in Yemen, that we might be looking at a trend where smugglers have such disregard for human life and want to protect their own necks that they're forcing people out of the boats before they even reach dry land. The incident yesterday off the coast of Yemen was apparently motivated by the smugglers' sight of an official, some sort of official on on the Yemeni coast. And it just seems to be lucky that IOM staff found these survivors. What's to say it hasn't happened before? This year you're saying 55,000 or so Somalis and Ethiopians have made it to the Yemeni coastline. It could have happened before. But what I will say is that our staff, the IOM, UN Migration Agency staff in Yemen, regularly patrols the beaches where we think migrants might be entering Yemen. We do that to be able to offer information, protection, medical assistance that we know that these migrants need when they enter the country, especially if they've been abandoned by the smugglers who are supposed to be helping them to the Gulf countries. Let's just talk about the profile of these migrants then. I've already said Ethiopians and Somalis for the main part. They're aged, they're teenagers, aren't they, in the main? Today and yesterday, the average age has been around 16, men and women. They're all teenagers. Youth unemployment is quite high in the places where they're coming from, Ethiopia and Somalia. They don't see so much opportunities for their future and they get sold this false idea by smugglers that place they can go to, in this case Gulf countries, has all these opportunities that they can't be afforded at home. And they're doing this even though there's a war going on in Yemen. That's Olivia here in International Organization for Migration Spokesperson who was talking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Time now for our economics news with Tabi Solihuku. Good morning. Ratings agency Moody's is expected to announce a review of South Africa's credit rating. Economists expect Moody's to affirm the BAA3 rating for the country and retain the negative outlook. The rating agency is expected to first assess the medium-term budget policy statement in October and 
possibly is the outcome of the ANC elective conference in December in terms of economic policy direction before further ratings action is taken. Fitch and Standard & Poor's have downgraded South Africa's credit rating to junk status. Moody's still has South Africa one notch above junk. Economist Azajameen. All the ratings agencies will instead be waiting to see the medium-term budget policy statement in October and secondly with what the presidential election outcome will be in December before deciding on whether to take a dramatic step in downgrading South Africa's credit rating further. Such a move by both these ratings agencies uh, to downgrade the local currency debt to junk would force South Africa out of the World Government Bond Index. The International Monetary Fund has revised Botswana's 2017 and 2018 economic growth forecasts due to rising diamond demand, investment in the water and power sector and reforms to attract investment. The IMF on Wednesday lifted Diamond Producers 2017 and 2018 economic growth forecast to 4.5 and 4.8% respectively. The IMF says the forecast assumes a gradual pace of reforms to improve the efficiency of the public sector and foster private sector activities. The world's largest security group, G4S, says its turnaround was on track as it posted a 7.6% rise in first-half profit on Thursday and forecast a better contract potential. The company says it is confident that a full-year revenue growth would be in line with the medium-term aim of between 4% and 6% and foresaw further expansion in 2018. For the past four years, G-Force, which provides services such as guarding, aviation screening and mobile patrols, has been selling businesses to pay off debt and trying to limit losses from British government contracts, gradually getting a greater share of its revenue from abroad. The Dubai Chamber of Commerce and Industry will organize and host the fourth global business forum on Africa in Dubai in November. UAE Vice President and Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed will host the two-day forum themed Next Africa Generation. It will bring together 1,000 top-level participants, including government officials, policymakers, business and finance leaders, and entrepreneurs from across Africa and around the world. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.40 in South Africa. It's at 10.17 in Botswana and at 8.86 in Zambia. 0.76 to the British pound, 0.85 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,285, platinum at $977 an ounce, brand crude $51, cents a barrel. It's Africa Rise and Shine. Up next is our sports news with Fiki Lilingwati.
First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with athletics in London. South Africa's Wade van Niekerk was not able to complete the first world 200-meter, 400-meter double since Michael Johnson in Gothenburg in 1995 when he finished second in the 200-meter event at the IWAF World Championships in London, claiming a silver medal in the process. The gold went to rank outsider Ramil Guliev of Turkey, who stopped the clock in 20.09 seconds, a mere 0.02 seconds ahead of Fanikerk. Running in lane 3, Fanikerk got off to a fantastic start and led with 50 meters left in the race. Unfortunately, he just could not hold on as Guliev managed to run him down at the death. Jarim Richards of Trinidad and Tobago finished in third, having stopped the clock in 20.11 seconds the same time as Fanikerk. Kasta Semenya has advanced easily to the semi-finals of the 800 meter after winning her first round hit at the IAAF World Championships. Semenya, a bronze medalist in the 1,500 meter in London as she attempted an audacious double, clocked 2 minutes, 0.133 seconds. Dogged by gender accusations since shooting the fame when she won world gold in Berlin in 2009, she says she just wants to keep winning. On to football news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana coach Shuad Baxter has asked for something to be done in as far as finding a meaningful place for the African Nation Championship Chan tournament in the wake of a number of withdrawals from his squad. Bafana are in East London, South Africa's Eastern Cape province, preparing for Saturday's Chan qualifier against Zambia at the Buffalo City Stadium. Very good question, because the further we go, the further we go, the more, the more it imposes on the, on the World Cup calendar. No, and AFCON, of course. But look, if we can, if we can find a meaningful place for, for, for Chan, then I'm not being disrespectful to the tournament. I just feel that with our calendar the way it is, with, with the, the scenario that we have, it's massively difficult for us to, to find that meaningful slot. Now, if we go through, then that's valuable international experience. We will, we will then be looking at a, a younger team and hopefully the club the clubs and the club owners will support that and we'll uh, and we'll try and we'll try and make it valuable experience for the future for the South African uh, younger players Baxter has admitted that he is faced with the challenge of not knowing which players are going to start against Chipolo Polo however Baxter says has made it clear that this is one challenge that he has to overcome We'll have had five, uh, five before we when we when we're going to go into the game. But we only had five against Nigeria as well, so it's it's not impossible. What what it is is that we've got to make them, we've got to get them all on the same page. You know, we've got to we've got to have a, a clear enough picture to allow them to have that sort of sense of security that they can then go out and express themselves a little bit more individually. But you know, those borders and those that structure, we've got to get that through to them. So difficult when people are shipped shipping in and out and you're not really sure which ones are going to be in the starting lineup but that's our that's our challenge and there's no bitching about it just get on with it it was always going to be a close battle between Gauteng and defending champions the western cape at the spa national netball championship Gauteng won by 46 to 44 Gauteng captain china mudao says they stuck to the basics we just played the game and it was a tight game. It was they were up, we were up, so it was just a matter of consistency. I think both teams lacked a bit. But yeah, it was just an exciting game all the way. We they are quite a similar team to Brutal Fruit, but yet again a bit different. So we just had to work on your opponent and our strength. So basically I wasn't 
we, we weren't working as a team. It was more of getting to know your opponent and what you can do to, to outsmart them, basically. Western Cape has been in the informed team lately, and team captain Julian Rousseau says the defeat will help them regroup and look at their mistakes. But you know what? It's not the end. Uh, it was literally two points. That's nothing. And uh, we can literally just go back and look at what our mistakes were and just work on that going forward. Um, you know, this, this is completely not the end. And this can actually maybe be a good thing for us to maybe just work harder going forward. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's four minutes before nine o'clock Central African time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. Kenya's opposition want Raila Odinga to be declared winner of the election. UN maintains zero tolerance to a militarization of camps in South Sudan. And South African opposition files motion calling for early elections. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this week from myself, Amanda Machaka. Producers Pumuzo Ramagata and Khumuzo Mupulani. Technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, you can send us a message on WhatsApp. It's plus two seven seven nine six three double zero double three two seven. You can also SMS plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency seven two three zero kilohertz on the forty one meter band to Southern Africa is B one from Zambia with a song titled to Perfecto. Baby,